You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. This is Jonah 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out from the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons, who do not know their right from right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Laurel. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is James. I'm on staff here. I got here this morning and walked into the parking lot at around, I think, like 930 and the Loudon family and a few friends were here tailgating, <laughs> frying bacon in this parking lot just back from the camping trip, and it was amazing. I don't know if this is a new tradition for the vine, but frying bacon before church service, I don't know. Houston's clapping up here. Sounds pretty good. But it's good to be gathered together this morning uh, with you, and um, it's my pleasure to continue our time together as we revisit our vision as a church, as we talk about gospel, community, and mission. So welcome if you're new or newer to the Vine or to Madison in general. Welcome if you're tuning in online. And as we get going, as a parent, uh, a parent of kids, you often hear this said uh, from, from other parents. 
as like you're getting ready to have a child, you're often told this, saying, expect to see yourself in your kids. Expect to see yourself in your kids. And it's been true. And it surprised me every time as a dad of two girls. And for us in our family, Lucy, our four-year-old, shares the exact same personality and temperament as Emily, my wife. For example, Lucy will, she will fixate and latch onto one subject for an entire day, perhaps an entire week. And she'll say, Dad, Dad, I'm interested in snakes. Tell me everything you know about snakes. And you can never tell her enough. It's always, Dad, I'm interested. Tell me more. Or it's, Dad, I'm interested in butterflies. Or lately, it's been this in our house. It's, Dad, I'm very interested in volcanoes. I find <laughs> I find I often reference John and Becky Centennial quite a bit in, in our house. Because <laughs> a lot of these are weather questions that I just like, we got to talk to John and Becky about this stuff. But, but we'll talk about volcanoes all day. Question after question after question. Now, Emily, when she was a, a child, she asked so many questions that her elementary school teachers intentionally stopped calling on her. Her hand would be up, and the teacher would say, and moving on. No questions. I don't see any questions. We're moving on. And if you know Emily, she's a great question asker. I love it about her. It's how she learns. And I could go on, but Emily and Lucy are two peas in a pod. And there's not much me of me in Lucy, so to speak. But in Hazel, now we're two peas in a pod. Every morning, um, for those of you who don't know me well, this I don't know if this surprises you or not. But every morning when I wake up, the first thing I do is I walk downstairs, open up our front door, and say, Good morning, McFarlane. It's where we live, and I love it, and I want people to be greeted every morning. I'm not lying. Emily can attest to this. When we walk around the neighborhood, we live in a a neighborhood where, um, you know, houses are close together, and we're always outside. I I call out to every neighbor far and near, and I go, Bula, 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 Bula! I just want to be seen and heard, you know? I want neighbors to know I'm there. I'm a friendly and energetic guy. And now Hazel, every moment of every day, is always grabbing her shoes and running to our front door, pounding on the glass of saying, I want to go outside. And when she gets outside, she goes down the street, and her best intimidate, or, uh, 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 in, Imitating, yes, <laughs> thank you. Imitating me, she goes to every squirrel, every rabbit, every neighbor. She wants to be seen and she wants to be heard. If you're back there by her right now, you're probably hearing her. She's a very energetic little girl. She likes to be seen and she likes to be heard. She's just like me. Poor girl. And I could go on, but Hazel and I are two peas in a pod. We share a lot in common. But here's the deal. No matter how many times I had been told to expect to see myself in my kids, actually seeing myself in Hazel, it surprises me every time. That's me. (laughs) That's me. And this brings me to the story of Jonah this morning. 
as we look at Jonah and consider the final pillar of our church mission. Last week, if you're here now, we looked at community, and the week before, we looked at gospel. And if you're new to the vine or if you're exploring a church home, I really commend you to to go online and to listen to these sermons because these will give you a good idea of who we are as a church as we seek to be a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through our declaration and demonstration. But Jonah... Jonah is perhaps the best-known Bible story that we have, right? And whether you grew up in the church or not, I'd imagine at some point you'd heard of Jonah and the giant fish or the giant whale, right? It's a remarkable story. Most likely the greatest missionary tale that's ever told. We have a pouting prophet swallowed by a fish who then leads an entire city in revival. It's fitting for Mission Sunday, right? But maybe it's a story we know too well. For for what is the story of Jonah really about? What were the people of Jonah's day supposed to take away from this book? And being such a familiar story to our ears, what, what really can you this morning expect to see in Jonah? Well, I'm going to tell you, expect to see yourself. Expect to see yourself. Like seeing myself in Hazel, expect to see yourself in the person of Jonah. Because in many ways, the book of Jonah gives us a window into the inner life of a man who loved God. Jonah loves God, but he deeply struggles to make sense of who God is. And although Jonah knew what God was like, he didn't consistently live that out in practice. But if we're honest, do we? Expect to see yourself in Jonah. Let's pray as we turn our eyes to this book. Father God, we pray by the might of your spirit and word that you would make alive your word. Would you put to life this Jonah story? And Lord, would you prune back the hedges of any sort of unbelief that we might clearly see you this morning? Encourage us, convict us, and sustain us by your word this morning. Amen. Well, if you're not there yet, turn to Jonah. And if you're like me, it's okay. You can use your table of contents. I have all week as I'm trying to find Jonah. It's stinking one page, you know? It's hard to find. But go ahead and get to Jonah. And if you have a print Bible, I'd really encourage you just keep it open. It's probably one page in your Bible. It's four chapters. There's not that many verses. But we're going to be all over this book this morning, okay? So if you have a print version, keep it open. If you have a mobile version, keep it open. We're going to be in Jonah this morning. And because I'm holding a mic, I'm not going to actually open my Bible. I'm just going to read it from my piece of paper. But don't worry, it's God's word. And before I jump into my sermon outline, I want to do a quick 10,000-foot view on the book of Jonah. All right? 10,000-foot view. Chapter 1. You can look with me as we kind of go through this. God calls Jonah, tells Jonah to take a message, not inside Israel's borders, but outside 
Israel's border to a, to a place called Nineveh. And this is important to know, but in Jonah's time, there's one world superpower, and that's the Assyrians. And where is Nineveh? It's right in Assyria. And during this time period, we know that the Assyrians continually raided and tortured Israel. In fact, ancient stone relics recovered from the Assyrians evidences just how much pleasure Assyrians took in the horrific brutalizing of their enemies. And I'd advise you not to Google this. It's wicked and it's gross. But all this to say that the the wickedness of Nineveh at this time was so great that one entire Old Testament book, Nahum, is dedicated to God's prophetic judgment upon this city. And yet, despite this, despite the wickedness of Nineveh, despite that they are the enemies of Jonah, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. God says, go. Jonah says, no. He jumps on a boat, right? We see it in chapter 1. He heads in the opposite direction. He sails into a storm, is thrown overboard, and is swallowed by a fish. Chapter 2. Three days, Jonah lives in this fish. And at some time within those three days, we don't know, but Jonah remembers God and he prays. And God hears and God saves. And Jonah, it says, is expelled from the fish back to dry ground. Chapter 3. Again, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time saying, go to Nineveh. This time Jonah goes. And he preaches, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, that's not the most seeker-sensitive sermon, but yet it leads to citywide revival. As one Bible teacher points out, the surprising truth of the Bible is not so much that a big fish can swallow a man, but that wicked people can be moved by God's word to repent and that God's mercy is available to all who believes. Chapter 4. After all that Jonah has endured, right, three days in the darkness and in the smells of this fish to deliver this message, you might expect as you reach chapter four that Jonah might be somewhat relieved at the positive response of Nineveh and of God's relenting of judgment. But Jonah's not relieved. Jonah's what? He's angry. And it's in this chapter, chapter four, that Laurel just read that we grab in a sense, are all access passed into the heart of Jonah. For how could a prophet, a prophet of God who knew God, a man who deeply loved God, be so resistive and then reluctant to share the good news of God to others? Meaning, why hadn't Jonah's vast knowledge of God, why hadn't Jonah's miraculous experience of God in the fish lead him to a joy-filled willingness and obedience? Well, I think theologian John Stott points us in the right direction when he says mission arises from the heart of God himself and is communicated from his heart to ours. Mission arises from the heart of God himself and is communicated from his heart to ours. Meaning we only grow, if we only, if we only grow in some sort of like intellectual understanding of who God is, without ever embracing in our hearts, God's heart will always be like Jonah. We, we join God's mission 
by joining our heart to his. And that's our big idea this morning, that we join God's mission by joining our heart to his. So here's where we're going this morning. I want to first look at Jonah's knowledge of God. And then secondly, I want to look at what was the challenge that Jonah had in embracing God's heart. All right? So first I want to see what did Jonah know about God? What is evidenced in this story? And then what was Jonah's challenge in embracing God's heart? So first, Jonah's knowledge of God. As God's prophet, as I said, Jonah would have had extensive knowledge of who God is. And as we read the Jonah story, I think there's two characteristics that really pop out, that stand out, which Jonah would have understood. One, that Jonah knew God was sovereign. And secondly, knowing that God was merciful. Jonah would have known that God was sovereign and that God was merciful. Now let's look at this. Jonah knew God was sovereign. Go back to chapter 1. Jonah jumps into the ship to escape God and finds himself in the terrible storm. And it says in verse 5, the sailors are afraid and they cast lots, finding Jonah responsible. And look how Jonah responds in verse 9. Jonah says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. What's Jonah saying here? He's saying, I know God. He's saying, I affirm who God is as the sovereign creator of, over all things. And chapter 2, when he's in the belly of the fish, notice how Jonah concludes his prayer in verse 9. Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. What's Jonah saying here? He's saying, I know God. I know God is the sovereign savior of, over all people. But it's not just that Jonah has some sort of theological abstraction of God's sovereignty. He also experiences it, right? Chapter 4, Jonah, as Laurel read, he's pouting on the sun-filled hill, and God provides a plant. Look with me at, at chapter 4, verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. Notice the repetition of verbs here. God appointed, God appointed, God appointed. And that's not the first time this language comes up. If you go back to Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, as Jonah's thrown overboard, what does the text say? God appointed a fish to save his life. So yes, Jonah knows God's sovereignty. He could declare it with his lips, but he also had a firsthand experience of God's sovereignty. Second, Jonah understood God's mercy. Again, chapter 4. After Jonah preaches in Nineveh, Jonah prays this in, in chapter 4, verse 2. The latter half of it, Jonah says, I know that you're a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What's Jonah saying here? He's saying, I know God. I know God is gracious and merciful. But again, it's not just that Jonah intellectually knows God's mercy. He also experiences it, right? Chapter 4, out of God's loving kindness, not Jonah's obedience God mercifully provides a plant as comfort and shade. Did jo Jonah grow the plant? No, God did. 
It's okay, I'm done with that one. Chapter 1, out of God's loving kindness, not Jonah's obedience, God mercifully intervenes and saves Jonah's life and gives him a second chance. So Jonah knows God's mercy, right? He could declare it with his lips, but he also had a firsthand experience of God's mercy. And this is what I'm trying to get at. Without a doubt, Jonah knew God's character. And I, and I, I tend to think that, that should have led Jonah towards Nineveh. It should have made him joyful and a willing missionary, but it didn't. And this is the tragedy of the book. Because I think our joy-filled willingness to share the good news of Jesus is 100% dependent on embracing God's heart in our own. And this was Jonah's challenge, and it's ours as well. So let's look at this. What is Jonah's challenge in embracing God's heart? What is Jonah's challenge in embracing God's heart? Again, chapter 4. Jonah has preached and Nineveh has repented. Verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and Jonah was angry. What, what, what angered Jonah? Well, the fact that Nineveh repented and that God relented of his judgment. And in fact, Jonah's anger burned so greatly that he exclaims in verse 3, Lord, please take my life from me for it's better for me to die than to live. In a sense, Jonah's saying, hey, God, if you're going to be this gracious and, and, and this kind to my enemies, then I'd rather be dead. And, and think about it. Because I think he'd rather die than go home and tell his own people that their enemies receive salvation from the Lord. Which brings me to the real reason why Jonah runs and jumps ship in verse 2. Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. Did, God, or did Jonah jump ship because he was afraid of the Ninevites and the harm that they would do to him? I don't think so. It was not what Jonah knew about Nineveh that made him run in the other direction. It's what Jonah knew about God. Knowing God, Jonah anticipated God's sovereign mercy would be extended, and Jonah hated that thought. Jonah didn't want God to save the Ninevites. Jonah wanted God to roast the Ninevites like Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and we hear this and we think, Jonah, that's awful. Like, how can you think that about another human being? But before we get too judgy on Jonah, remember that as one can expect to see yourself in your children, expect to see yourself in Jonah here. Because it's easy on this side of history to look back at Jonah and say, brother, were you worthy of God's sovereign mercy when he rescued you from the storm? But you see, Jonah's blinded by anger. And out of God's loving kindness, God asked Jonah three questions to uncork the lurking darkness of his heart. Let's look at these questions. The first question in chapter 4 is Jonah's on the sun-filled hill, angry. In verse 4, the Lord comes to Jonah and says, Do you do well to be angry? 
I think God's saying, hey, Jonah, do you actually think you're justified in being angry? Do you actually think you're the one who's thinking rightly and that I am wrong? Well, Jonah doesn't answer, does he? So God, in verses 6 through 8, orchestrates an object lesson to help punctuate the stark contrast between Jonah's heart and God's heart. And this is where we get the plant, that God grows for Jonah to shield the sun, to then the next day destroy the plant, right? And then God comes at him with another question. In verse 9, God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And this time Jonah answers, and Jonah says, yes, I do, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. You see, in this question, I think God wants Jonah to, to see the flawed inconsistency of his thought. Because when God extended mercy to Nineveh, Jonah became angry. But when God withdrew his mercy from Jonah and killed the plant, Jonah is angry. You see the inconsistency of Jonah. For, for what right does Jonah have to suggest God's mercy on, on his life, yet not on another? You see, Jonah's answer reveals his heart, a heart that's far greater concerned with his own physical comfort under the shady plant than for the spiritual well-being of an entire city facing eternity where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And having revealed Jonah's heart, God reveals his heart in his final question. Verse 10. And the Lord said to Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. You see, in a beautifully gentle way, God is pointing Jonah, Jonah is painting for Jonah a contrast of their hearts. For the plant that Jonah so dearly all of a sudden loves, that a plant that only lived for one day, a plant that he neither planted nor watered, had all of a sudden become the primary object of his affection, didn't it? And God wants to shift Jonah's compassion away from the plant and find significance in the things that God finds important. God wants Jonah to find significance in the things that he finds important, which is compassion for the lost. God wants Jonah's heart to break for the things that break God's heart. And this is God's heart, that all might repent and have eternal life, even those wicked men and women of Nineveh. And so let me pause right here to say if you're listening to this or sitting with us right now and you've always thought of your past too damaged or your sin too great to qualify for Jesus' love, may the Jonah story encourage you. Because, friend, God's mercy and God's love is wide. It is not narrow. For the Ninevites, a purely evil nation found God's forgiveness. You know, you know, the measure of God's mercy and love, you know what that is? It's Jesus's outstretched arms on the cross 
as he died for our sins. That's the wideness of God's mercy. So friend, if you've yet to place your trust and treasure in Jesus, turn now to Jesus and in faith find life. But back to Jonah. The Jonah story, as we see, ends in a very untidy way with an unanswered question. We don't know how Jonah responds, and this is not a mistake. It ends on a question in order that everyone, that's us, who reads it might ask themselves the same question. Is God not right? Is God not right? Is God not great for showing his mercy to the Ninevites. You know, in the historical context of the book of Jonah, for Jonah and for his fellow Israelites, what they needed to hear in this moment was that they needed to expand their understanding of the targets of God's mercy and to see the Ninevites not as enemies, but as image bearers of God. Image bearers of God with no ability to come to God. And Jonah needed to see himself as God always intended for him, for Israel to always be, which is what? A blessing to all the nations of the earth. But here's what Jonah forgot. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, The Lord your God has chosen you, Israel, to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers. Do you hear what God is saying here? He's saying, Jonah, I didn't save you because you were great. I didn't save you because you were mighty. I didn't save you because you were worthy. Jonah, I loved you because I am loving. I loved you because I am gracious. I loved you because I am merciful. The wrong response to mercy is to think that we deserve it and that others don't. And that's what makes the cross of Jesus so beautiful. Because no one is more deserving or not than the other. The cross levels the playing field. It's at the cross that we're given a new set of eyes towards those who are needy because it's at the cross where we must embrace this gospel reality that we ourselves are right there at the same cross, no better than the next, that we ourselves, we are poor and broken. Dare I say we are a Ninevite in need of a savior. But Jonah couldn't get this in his head that he didn't deserve God's mercy any more than those of Nineveh. But this is what the story of Jonah teaches you and I, that we are no more worthy of God's mercy than even the most vilest of persons. And what makes us missional, what makes us live on mission for God is is not just getting God's heart like intellectually forcing it into our heads or having some miraculous experience but what makes us missional is, is, that, is that moment by moment defining us as sinners in need of grace. When we walk with this understanding that I am a sinner in need of God's grace that will flood us with compassion and a compulsion to share Jesus. And this is the Jonah principle. 
that until you see yourself as no more worthy of God's grace than that of a wicked Ninevite, you always find yourself like Jonah, reluctant, resistive to share the good news of Jesus to the lost. When we begin to understand how worthy we really are of God's constant and continual mercy and love and kindness that's showered upon us each and every day, it's out of this Jonah principle that we'll join with God's heart in showing the love of Jesus to others. And for historical context, this is exactly the message that the original audience, the Israelite, needed to learn from this story. We don't know when this book was written or delivered, but what we do know is that it would have been right before or right after or during the darkest days of Israel's history when they were in exile in the hands of their enemy. And so Jonah, the story of Jonah is written to challenge his people not to define the targets of his mercy for only those whom treat you favorably or for whom you can justify in experiencing God's mercy. But Jonah's is written, Jonah is written to challenge God's people that all people, even when you are an enemy, are deserving of God's mercy because that's what you once were. We were all enemies of God. The calling for Israel is the same calling for us today as a vine church in Madison, Wisconsin. As Jesus departs earth, what does he say? Go and make disciples of all nations. And friends, this is, this is the rub. This is where it gets tough. Because this means that God's heart is even for those who make us very uncomfortable. Perhaps someone we might consider an enemy. Perhaps a person we'd rather have nothing to do with. Perhaps a person who you despise and, and, and look down upon. Who is the Ninevite in your life? For me, I, I can think of three folks that I'd rather not share or even just pray that Jesus would, would, would intervene and, and show his mercy in their life. <laughs> and this is what's tough. Through the Jonah story, God informs me that even those whom I, in some sense, despise, God is saying they matter to me, James, just as much as you do. They matter to me as much as you do. And while that is the toughest of pills to swallow, to see those who may have inflicted great pain or harm into our lives be recipients of the goodness and kindness and mercy of Jesus. But unless we allow this Jonah principle to, to, to work its way into our hearts, our default sinful response will always be that of superiority like that of Jonah. Of that person's just too evil or too wicked to ever receive God's mercy. Or that person is, is undeserving. They're unworthy of God's freedom. Or I, I'm busy. I have, thank, I have a life and, and they've had their opportunities. They've simply missed their chance. But the Jonah story, the principle, is that God extends his mercy to the broken, the miserable, the unlovable, as such were you. Which left God saying to Jonah at the end of the book, should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not pity Nineveh? 
Perhaps he's saying to you right now, should I not pity that family member who consistently, constantly is ridiculing me for this or for my faith? Should I not pity that boss who maybe treats you unfairly? Should I not pity that neighbor who maybe harasses me for a political or religious persuasion? Should I not pity that coworker who talks behind your back and spreads lies about you at work? Should I not pity you fill in the blank? Should I not pity that person, that group of people? Should God not pity these people? Until you see yourself as a Ninevite, you will not sense the urgency nor have the compassion to share Jesus with the lost. And so I just want to ask this question, these questions that we ask ourselves in these, these moments. Of what would an examination of what makes you angry or glad reveal? What would an examination of what makes you angry or glad reveal? How much do you truly care about the people in your neighborhood or family? People who are not strangers, but right now face a future without God's of, of God's judgment. Where is the evidence in your life that you care for those who do not know Jesus? Let me close with good news. God is still very much interested in transforming obstinate and irritable and depressive Jonas into heralds of good news. God is very much interested in transforming obstinate, irritable, and depressive Jonas into heralds of good news. May Jonah remind us that we are in need of a greater prophet. When God asked Jonah to leave his home to go to wicked Nineveh, a place deserving a judgment, Jonah said no. But when God asked Jesus to leave the splendor of heaven, to go to earth, a place filled with people deserving judgment, and to take that judgment upon himself, Jesus said, yes. And so when we're confronted with moments of resistance or re- reluctance to join God's heart, let's run to Jesus. And let us pray, God, make me less like Jonah and more like Jesus. Make me less like Jonah and more like Jesus. God, break my heart like your heart is broken for those who are perishing. God, give me tears in my eyes like the tears in your eyes. God, do for others what you have done for me. God, make me less like Jonah and more like Jesus. Because here's the deal. At the end of all times, the Apostle John has a vision a vision in which there's a great multitude standing around the throne of God, a multitude crying out with a loud voice, crying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. You know what I think who will be around that throne? I think Jonah's going to be there. And I think there's going to be some Ninevites too. We join God's mission by joining our heart to his. Fine family, should God not pity our community of Madison? May we be a church that's filled with God's spirit to make disciples in Madison, around the world, 
through our declaration and demonstration. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we do pray that you would make us less like Jonah and more like you. And just by praying that prayer, Lord, we are flooded with a tremendous sense of awe of who you are. That despite our sin and failure and resistance and reluctance to join you, Lord, you loved us. You met us in your mercy. Lord, we give you thanks for that. Lord, I pray that the Jonah story would never leave our minds, but that Jonah would stir us to remember, stir us to remind us of the affection of what you have done on our behalf. And Lord, may we desire that all people might experience what you have done for us, dying on the cross for our sins. So we pray for Madison. We pray for our neighbors. We pray for our community. We pray for North Africa. We pray for our partners in Ecuador. Lord, we pray that all people might come to repentance. Lord, we ask that you might use us in whatever way to see this happen. Lord, help us to be a family, a church family, dependent on your spirit to live out the mission that you have entrusted to us. We need your help. It's your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to conclude our service by taking of communion. If you don't have the communion elements, you can raise your hand and someone will get them to you. But I think the text in Jonah really sets us up in a beautiful way as we consider the Lord's table together. And that at the cross, the playing field is leveled. None of us is better than the other. We're all sinners. And so as we take of the bread and juice this morning, I encourage you to look around and realize that God's, Jesus' body and, and blood, it's, it's what unites us. It's his mercy. And it places us in this family of God. And we celebrate that. We celebrate that truth. And we look forward to the day in which we will do this with him forever. And so if you're not with us in person, there's a prayer in your worship guide. We encourage you to pray that prayer as we participate in the Lord's table together here in person. In Matthew 26, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, Jesus broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, Jesus gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So, Vine family, I encourage you to rip back the, the wafer, to take of the bread, and to take of the cup at this time. And Father God, we give you thanks for this meal. Lord, we thank you for your life, death, and resurrection, that we are reminded that we are a people 
created by you. Lord, thank you for your death on the cross that frees us from our sins, that calls us into this new community, a family of God. Lord, we worship you this morning. Our hearts are filled with thanksgiving and joy, knowing what you have done. Stir us to remind ourselves the great mercy which you have given to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, Vine family, let me read. Let me read as we go from here, from God's word, as Matthew concludes his book. Vine Church, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, and behold, Vine family, I am with you always, even to the ends of this age. Vine family, you are sent. God bless. Thank you for keeping the rain off. Feel free to continue to stay here and mingle. Thank you for joining us online. You're sent.